Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Sit back, back, relax, it's Brendan here with Mark, episode 259, Thursday, September the 16th. 2022 or 2022 how are you mark awesome brendan just really really well enjoying uh, we've had a few days of um but we've come back home we're back at home and um and uh crikey's the ground is sodden i can't believe how much rain they've had here over the uh the last few months while we've been away and um but we've been enjoying just a few days of sunshine and we've got the lawn mowed done all the home duties so yeah i'm going well did they have a bottle of champagne ready on the bench there and uh, some little poppers going when you came (laughs) home mark no we actually surprised them brendan we we came we (laughs) did, did a little bit of a Dash and got here a day earlier than they expected. So, um, no, there was only "What are you doing here?" type comments. Were they? Did you hear, did you hear them running? And this is <laughs> this is one of your sons for our listeners and and partner, I presume. Um, they went yep, running yep. crazily and, and saying, "Bloody hell, they're here! They're home! Quick, clean up!" Put that away. No. Put that. <laughs> yes. No, they didn't Quick, get a hide, chance. Hide it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, it has been good weather. It has been good weather here as well. And we were talking off air that um, I went for a lovely walk with my wife this morning, a pretty long walk, and we're going to start doing a couple of and a little trail that takes takes us to one of our other little suburbs, Mark. So almost through the bush for the whole length. So we're going to do that next week. And um, potting around the house as I was um, <laughs> complaining about. Um, we are both couple- being really, really, um, you know, uh, domestic. We're really uh, keeping yes, the yes, home. Yes, very domestic. <laughs> um, yes, and there's a few um, interesting times gone this afternoon. I'm just looking at my finger, Mark. I forgot I told you I whacked it with a bloody mallet <laughs> um, this afternoon. So there's a decent-sized bruise there, but all's good in, in the end. And um, I think a very productive day today. And there's something about it once spring springs, Mark. Um, spring has sprung here in the Southern Hemisphere. And we've had a couple of good days because it's been, it was a very – cold and miserable winter here wasn't it well it certainly was here in melbourne i think yeah. it wasn't for you on your no, no. travels you used to head up you know you just followed the sun didn't you <laughs> that's it we were um we're avoiding the bad weather by just chasing the sun yes um so it's good and hopefully the spring will continue though i think we've got a couple of bad days coming up and interestingly enough mark i want your comment on this bit of controversy um, they've announced a public holiday here an extra public holiday here next week for to um for the queen um queen's funeral and literally uh, out of the blue two weeks before it, they've announced this holiday so not you know potentially it's a bit tricky for businesses especially small businesses like myself mark and um, they've announced today when we have to either decide to open and pay staff a lot more or close and cop Make the <laughs> payment of um these staff because they were rusted on for that day mark so what do you think about this whole concept 
Uh, you could guess. <laughs> I'm not a big fan. Um, I, I look. I for those um, who who really are monarchists, I understand uh, the passing of someone who's been in the position for seventy years, and it's a big event. Um, I don't think, as a country, we're all on board with it. Um, and there's some aspects of the monarchy, maybe not specifically uh, Lizzie, but uh, of the monarchy that um, really rubs people the wrong way. And, geez, we're all entitled to our own opinion and, and maybe a public holiday is a, a bit over the top. I think, Brendan, the irony is that um, for another public holiday, uh, people around the world might not realise that in Australia the... Uh, currently, um, for the last 20 or 30 years, Australia Day has been celebrated on January 26th, which is uh, the anniversary of, uh, um, um, you know, Arthur Phillip coming to Australia and, and declaring the country um, uh, British. So it's technically a celebration of an invasion, and that rubs a lot of Indigenous people the wrong way. But crikey's for years now, we haven't been able to change that public holiday, but oh, just in a few hours, we can have another public holiday. Um, and for any- our overseas <laughs> listeners too, Matt, we also celebrate, or we did celebrate the Queen's birthday was a public holiday in Australia, although it isn't actually celebrated or wasn't celebrated on her actual birth date. So I presume, do you know what's going to happen, Mark, now that we oh, have King Charles? We'll still have it. We're King not going to Charles, give up So we'll have ki- the King Queen, King's birthday, but will it be around the same day or will it be a different time of the year, Mark? No, I think it'll um, be the same day, I think. And I think. Australia being part of the Commonwealth, that's how it sort of fits in with, with everything. For those in non-Commonwealth countries, it's a bit of a, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, the whole monarchy thing and goes back to, you know, it's just a method of ruling, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah. Um, although they're sort of figureheads these days. Um, so one of the articles that was published um, after the Queen's passing was speaking about the the amount of sort of money that they <laughs> um, have and it was some something crazy, 600 plus million pounds, but they could not put an estimate on the property. That wasn't including their property, you know, like Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace, etc. It was, and they expect that was in the, the region of billions market yeah. that it was worth. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a strange strange concept, isn't it? But enough about that. Let's <laughs> chat about one of our sponsors, Mark, Specialised Animal Nutrition. We need to thank one of our three sponsors, main sponsors, and we do have some individual sponsors as well. Go to vetgurus.com to help us out and help pay for our production costs. But Specialised Animal Nutrition, Jen and the team are the Australian distributors of the Oxbow products including including the wonderful oxbow critical care so thanks jen and her team now mark let's jump into good our... catching up with jen at, in it darwin was. Yeah. it was gee, it was so good to catch up with face to at face. the usual it was jen from specialized animal nutrition and um andrew from andrew. Chemical Essentials were there, and as usual, they shared a booth at the trade exhibit. Unfortunately, our, our third sponsor uh, um, 
Microchips Australia and Doug couldn't attend, um, so we didn't get to chat chat with him. But yeah, it was excellent catching up with them and saying hello. So well, yeah, it was. Um, so Mark, you've got well, let's say it's a straight into news, different into story. News. Yes, what do you have? Um, my my story, I like to think of it as this, well, you called it the pleasure monkey story. Um, it's a, a, a report about um, some macaques uh, who were using stone tools for, well, it's a bit, I don't, having read the, the um, news report and read the original article, um, I wonder, geez, the, in the news report, they suggest that in sexually charged situations, um, the uh, uh, macaques, the long-tailed macaques, free-ranging long-tailed macaques, would uh, pick up stones and um, uh, touch them near their genitals, particularly the males, particularly the less dominant males, and they um, they, they they claim that uh, that this was um, you know some form of tool-assisted masturbation. I don't know that I'm entirely well, convinced, um, but um, but they're monkeys, and I suppose they. Um, I can't see the, the the tapping and rubbing with the stones being um, uh, particularly comfortable. But um, if that's what our uh, our good scientific friends determine, um, I suppose. Well, we'll have to go with it. But um, I don't know that it's a. Uh, um, what's the right thing to say? It might be just a little aberration that the, uh, the monkeys find particular textures relieving in certain tenseful situations. Um, I don't know that it's um, going to rewrite any textbooks, Brendan. Yes. Well, and they put the wrong title on that article, didn't they? It should have been Monkeys Get Their Rocks Off is what they should have said um, with that. Um, yes, it was... <sighs> gee. Why did you bring up that story, Mark? Uh, I don't know why you brought that one up. Mine's not much better, having said all of that. Mine's dead spiders turning them into robots, necrobiotics. I love this for the name necrobiotics, Mark. Um, and I don't know, why are they doing this? Um, they reanimated dead spiders. Well, I don't think they exactly reanimated them. Um, so what they did, they converted the corpses of wolf spiders into grippers. So all they really did, Mark, is they shoved a syringe into the spider's back and glued it, and then they pushed fluid in and out of the cadaver, and it made its leg, legs clench open and shut. Um, and they used, um, took videos of that. I don't know whether you've seen the video. Um, so like a little gripper, um, you know, like those little grippers you had as a kid. Um, and that was it. Um, so the idea was actually born from a simple question explaining Dr. Yap, um, the mechanical engineer, why do spiders curl up when they die? So the answer was that spiders are hydraulic machines, Mark, um, and they control how much the legs extend by forcing blood into, so, into them. So that's why they injected this sort of um, just fluid into them and they you know, actually pretty nifty little video, I must admit. Um, so the next step is they want to try and work out how sort of that pneumatic system works by managing to just 
work one leg, Mark, instead of all of their legs. Um, so they think it might translate to understanding better into designing robots, Mark. Um, so they're not really reanimated spiders. They're still dead, aren't they? And they just <laughs> pump them full of, um, of um, fluid. They don't mention, I don't think, what... Um, what fluid it was. Fluid they put into them, whether yeah. it was, you know... Um, WD forty or something, or who knows what they put Hydraulic into the machines. Yeah, it does. The, the, when I first saw this article, I thought, "Oh goodness, this isn't going to end well." When you combine dead spiders, turning them into robots, this just like can't end well. It's like the start of you know the worst sort of horror movie. But um, yeah. In actuality, yeah. you can imagine doing it to a human, and then you've got the, you've got the, you're at your funeral, and they're pumping the fluid in and out of Mark, and he's walking down wave. the aisle at the funeral. <laughs> yes, wave them off. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh dear. Um, yeah, I don't know whether that where that one goes, Mark, but there are some bizarre studies out there. But it was an interesting video. We'll have a link to it at our website vetgurus.com for this particular episode well let's jump into something a little bit more serious mark than our banter for the last 13 minutes or so and that is a topic you suggested a while ago and it's a bit of a controversial one but um yeah let's get stuck into it ethical breeding of exotic pets and in particular reptiles so what we're talking about here is um the different variations and you know especially with the reptiles we're talking about um, the generic term that people always say breeding different morphs of reptiles and trying to breed different snakes and lizards etc to you know be all these weird colors and albinos and fluorescent ones and ones that glow in the dark etc and all these um fancy looking um colors and you know i mean my bottom line, my summary of this mark is it's uh, it's very similar to what I reckon's happened with you know dogs and cats and the breeding that happened with them, and we're just breeding them for the humans' idea of what looks good or, or, or what a, what what appeals to them, and to detriment of the species involved. So that's my summary, Mark. So let's dig Jeez, into that's, it. What that's made think? that's made in a very short podcast, Brendan. <laughs> so I think there why, are, there, why there do people some... do this, Mark? Why do they do it? Well, it's a very good question. Why do they do it? I think um, uh, avarice, um, the desire to own and control something, the desire to have something that's rare and unusual, um, the desire to make money from the breeding process. And, and of course, we all know that many of these unusual morphs, um, particularly when they first come around, uh, are often paid for, you know, people pay quite a lot to acquire them. Um, so, But none of these things, I think, I think in talking about it, I, I, I highlight the fact that all, these are all human factors. These are all things about uh, what people might feel about the animals and um, not necessarily um, what is, um, you know, what is good for the animal. And I think uh, to expand on your starting point, uh, I think that um, that's part of our role is to always be the animal's advocate. And this is one of the classic situations where we need to exercise our uh, wisdom and expertise and experience 
um, to talk to people about what is good in these situations. And I've been a little bit guilty, Brendan. One of the reasons I suggested this topic is that I've probably been a little bit guilty of um, not engaging nearly enough with this and, and um, you know, being angry at the people that uh, go down this path. And, and, and I think it's important that we do engage and, and lead this all in the right direction. You're talking with the sound off, aren't you, Brendan? Absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking a little bit. Um, so what is the advantage of doing this, Mark? Um, we've spoken a tad about the disadvantages or a tiny little overview of it. So what's yeah. a good reason of doing um, this? This, um, eth- You know, what is ethical breeding, I suppose, of exotic pets? Why, that's bloody hell. I didn't realise how loaded these questions were. Um, what is ethical breeding? Well, I think ethical breeding um, is, as we said, a breeding that puts the interests of the animal uh, centre field, um, that uh, focuses on what is right for the animal um, and the well-being of the animal and uh, and limits the chance that there is uh, the potential for suffering. And you highlighted the our you know brachycephalic dogs and cats and even rabbits um, and they're popular animals because of the way they look and the way they make people feel but I I worry that um, that once again we haven't put the interests of those animals at the forefront and and I think in reptile in the reptile situation uh, it's a you know it's taken quite a while for um, those particular breeds of animals in mammals to to get to the point we have them now but um, reptiles are, uh, may have a shorter generation interval that they can be selected much harder for some of these unusual forms or colors or morphs um, and uh, and yeah there may be um, an argument to say that we should not be pursuing at least some of these genetic abnormalities uh, for the benefit of um, of the humans that own the animals if they're not benefiting the animals. So which species or groups of animals would you say are being bred this way? Or increasingly, Mark. So, is it is it just reptiles? Do you you know do you, are you concerned about it in in birds, for instance? Um, do we see it in small mammals? Well, I think the interesting thing for me is that uh, we see it in all species. We definitely see um, you know a, a a component of it in all species, um, and and I probably would suggest that we might not be seeing as much of it in our birds um, as in our reptiles. There does seem to be a closer correlation with some of the the colour morphs, the different colours and potential complications with, you know, neurotransmitters, nervous systems, that sort of thing, um, uh, than we see with the, the different colours of... Uh, of our birds if you know the difference between a green and blue budgerigar is probably not as significant um, as some of those uh, unusual colored reptiles uh, unusual colored pythons in particular and the the associated nerve system problems right um the other one the other one i was going to mention was um 
the reduced scalation bearded dragons. Brendan, I've had a bit to do with um, with uh, some of these animals that have been, uh, you know, taken up as pets because uh, obviously they look a bit different. They're they're quite colourful. The animals are um, uh, um, are in you know bearded dragons are popular pets, um, and so the leatherbacks and the silkbacks um, they're um, reptiles that have real uh, potential issues with hydration status and um, shedding and and the protective nature of their skin normally might not might not function that way and and this the amount of those animals that I see have problems or need special attention um, makes me worry that um, that breeding those types of animals might not you know might be as bad or worse than um, than what we do with uh, brachycephalic dogs. So, what clinically, what are the issues then that you, that you see with these in the in, you know in the extreme cases where where, where they're having disease process or physical issues with them. Well, I think um, uh, the, the the first thing is that they definitely, you know, if we specifically hone in on those. Uh, uh, reduced scalation bearded dragons, they definitely uh, need management of their their hydration status. Um, and there's a whole series of complications that can occur if that doesn't happen. Um, so, for example, uh, just one of the myriad possible problems that can occur with these guys is that they're more prone to impaction because they probably don't, if not, uh, attention rigorously paid, they might operate at uh, consistently a lower status of hydration, and um, and in particular meals when they're digesting particular meals, that makes them more prone um, to uh, to you know inappropriate gastrointestinal movements, ineffective gastrointestinal movements, and then subsequent impactions. Um, it obviously uh, puts a lot of pressure on the kidneys that. Uh, they're not getting rid of the same volume of water, and so uh, they may end up with uroliths or structures like that. Not to mention the the just the altered thickness of the skin um, and the skin's natural defences against uh, uh, um, funguses and bacteria. Um, that is extremely reduced, and so if you've got to keep such a lizard in an increased uh, uh, humidity environment to maintain its hydration and normal gastrointestinal function and its skin is not as good at dealing with uh, funguses you sort of got two competing battles going on and you might end up losing both brendan so do you find that you see any of these with the actual skin sort of um, elasticity issues as well so, so you know the skin you see tearing of the skin with these um, lizards or snakes that have these these um, these um, morphs. There definitely is an increased rate of um, of skin lesions, and probably not so much. Um, uh, I wouldn't have thought uh, spontaneous tearing. We definitely see a uh, uh, um, number of species of python um, who who develop um, what do they call it? Um, banana skin syndrome, which hasn't. You know, it looks to me like um, one of those. Uh, um, connective tissue defects and the snakes move in a particular way and, and the skin just peels off. Yeah. Um, but, um, and that may well have a, 
a uh, genetic component as well. Uh, but it's an infrequent, you know, I'm, I've probably only seen three snakes like that in Australia. I've seen reports of them overseas, um, but it's not a uh, significant, I wouldn't have thought it was a significant problem. Um, and I certainly haven't seen, uh, you know, the the idiopathogenesis elucidated well, but I wouldn't be surprised that there's some connective tissue problem with those guys. No, these bearded dragons, um, they're definitely more susceptible to micro trauma. Um, then, you know, their skin is just isn't as tough. It, that's how yeah. they get their names, silkbacks, uh, from the, the, the very delicate nature of the, the um, uh, you know their skin and the absence of those big spiky keratinized scales that protect normal bearded dragons. So um, you know they rub against a particular enclosure and that can be enough to lead to a lesion and and obviously um, uh, that becomes a portal of entry for bacteria or fung fungi to cause infectious problems. Mm. Um, question without notice, <laughs> as usual. What about uh, the effect normal UV in, in these enclosures? Would oh, um, have you seen any question? Yeah, I about question. that. Oh, <laughs> I love the way you cut to these uh, insightful analyses, Brendan. Um, I, I think that um, we we don't know enough, but I suspect you are onto something that uh, that the normal ultraviolet exposure, the normal exposure to sunlight that we would expect a bearded dragon to cope with, these uh, reduced scalation lizards can't cope with that and that actual burn, sunburns, um, may well contribute to the spectrum of uh, skin pathologies they, uh, they have to deal with. Um, and, of course, if you cannot, I mean, this is the... The problem, as I see it, is that um, you can keep one of these lizards alive, and you know, but you have to manage their exposure to ultraviolet light enough that they don't develop uh, calcium metabolism problems, but not so much that they develop uh, burns and and yeah. uh, those other complications. So I think you're exactly right. I think uh, um, uh, um, even something as basic as their exposure to light potentially can cause suffering for them what about birds mark do you want to talk about ethical breeding of birds do we have similar concerns well i think um the the key thing um about uh the ethical breeding of birds probably is i shift a little bit from the the genetics although i do think that um that there is uh, definitely in my experience there's been a focus on the color and not on the robustness of the birds and and I think that um, because there's often a, a process of line breeding or inbreeding to establish a color mutation that um, has the potential to cause um, uh, a weakness in that group of animals that expose, you know, that uh, demonstrates that colour. Yeah. Um, but I, I worry more about when we talk about ethical breeding in birds. I worry more about what happens once the birds uh, become hand reared. I worry that that socialisation process, um, the 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 technical process of having a pair of birds, having them have eggs. Um, even now, sometimes those eggs are sold as eggs to people who are experienced at incubating them. 
um, and then hand-rearing those birds. Um, and as a consequence, those young birds are not socialised with their own species um, and they are socialised with humans as they're hand-reared. And crikeys, we're seeing, well, I think of it as an epidemic of um, of, uh of behavioural abnormalities that we can attribute to that absence of normal socialisation. Um, so I think the ethical breeding of birds uh, should focus much more on on ensuring that those young birds that get sold for pets have been appropriately socialised uh, with their own species before they're desensitised to humans. And all that reproductive stuff, like we see a huge amount of problems with particularly female birds and their reproductive issues. And a lot of those problems uh, can be sheeted home to inappropriate responses to humans that um, they either don't get enough or too much of um, one point of um, stimulation of the reproductive system and they don't respond normally because they don't have normal, you know, um, uh, imprinting when they're young, normal socialisation when they're young. So, so I think while the genetics is the focus of the ethical breeding um, amongst the reptiles I like um, to think of uh, um, you know the the socialization and connection with their species as the important component in birds so how do we fix this potential concern mark of the of the craze of breeding well I well, think we breeding have to... animals that we shouldn't I suppose well, I think um, it's, it, uh, people are always going, I mean, it, it's a measure of their love for the animals that, um, you know, they want them to complete their normal life cycle. And it it is seen as a measure of keeping them successfully. If you can uh, care for um, animals well enough that they're, they're reproductively active, there's a certain assumption that they're you know, that their basic needs are being met and their care is adequate. I don't know that I always agree with that. I think many animals will will breed, you know, almost as a last hurrah to keep their species going yeah. um, despite the, the care that they go through rather than because of it. Um, but I think... Um, uh, Using our position as um, as educators and authorities to suggest that that it's an undertaking that's not taken lightly, that it's taken with a specific um, outcome in mind. That you know these animals need to go to a certain home, or if I don't have homes for them, then I'm not going to breed. Um, that they're going to be of a certain you know I'm going to breed uh, for robustness of health first um, and then um, uh, you know not take every animal that looks a little bit odd that has a color change or whatever um, and I'm going to uh, um, not necessarily try and breed that just for those features and when they when I do make a decision to breed those animals I'm going to ensure that not only are they allowed to complete their reproductive cycle you know, the, fulfill their reproductive potential, um, but the behaviourally they're allowed to go through all the normal things associated with that, um, that they're allowed to rear the young to a certain point, that they're 
Um, they're allowed to do all the environmental enriching, environmentally enriching things that are associated with reproduction, and we're not going to medicalise it completely um, for our own human benefit. And I think we have to be a bit of an advocate for that sort of stuff. Um, I know that we have to, you know, there's uh, endangered species where um, these techniques, reproductive, assisted reproductive techniques, make a huge difference. Um, but I don't think that, um, you know, we need to uh, just, what's, what does, um, well, just because we can do something doesn't mean we always have to do it. Yeah, so it's education as usual, Mark, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could come up with an, a, uh, another, um, uh, you know, theme, um, another action that we need to take. Um, but no, I agree with you entirely that I think um, uh, we need, but I think that um, that education can be specific about, you know, things like um, uh, immune function that we're going to, you know, an animal that's had um, a series of health issues when it's been young um, might have to be not included in the the you know, the reproductively active captive population. They might be, uh, uh, they, we might just have to be resigned to them being pets and not being reproductively active. And then we might have to take steps to ensure that uh, reproductive activity doesn't harm them. But um, I think that, yeah, we've got to uh, use um, indices of, of robustness and hardiness um, in as a priority um, in keeping these, if we're going to breed these animals in captivity. What do you reckon, Brendan? Yes. I've got a question for you. What do you reckon oh, about, no. um, I think that <laughs> one of the other things that happens in captive populations is that uh, almost without, um, without uh, knowing it, we select the reptiles that are, um, that are, that are most tractable, that are most compliant, um, that if there's a whole bunch of snakes um, and you have a few of them that are bite you every time you go anywhere near them. So selecting on behaviour. Yeah, yeah. What do you think behavior. about that? Well, I think it makes sense, but whether, yeah, whether it, whether it works, I don't know, Mark. Do you think it will, um, it will help in the long run? You know, if you're picking that non- Strikey um, tiger snake um, instead of the one, um, and and trying to breed placid ones. Will it work? Um, perhaps. Uh, I think. I think it 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 definitely makes them more amenable to captivity, and it makes them less stressed. You know those those. Um, those uh, animals that smash at the glass every time someone walks past, they might be wonderful survivors in the wild, um, but they're obviously going to be in captivity, constantly high cortisol, constantly immune uh, suppressed because of the stress they're under. Yeah. Um, I so mean, I it think- makes sense that you're... Yeah, you don't breed from the crazy one, doesn't it? Yeah. With, any, with any animal, whether it's a highly strung, anxious little poodle cross um that's just an absolute emotional um wreck um that perhaps if we don't breed from this animal the same as if we'd say that labrador yeah it's a beautiful personality but its hips are so dysplastic that it can hardly walk at 12 months of age uh, 
yeah, but I'm not a geneticist, Mark, and I'm sure that somebody's going to jump in and say that's a load of cod's wallet, Brendan, and um, we do not select. We well, I think that, select on that. I don't. I, th- know. I think they um, that it's almost impossible for us to not select on it. I think it happens without uh, an active process, without a conscious process. You know, you just don't like dealing with the cranky ones, so you tend to deal with the ones that are more tractable. Um, but I think that also inadvertently produces um, more domestic strain, um, and. Um, can even get to the point where it starts to select adversely. So I think we just need to have a, whenever we deal with breeders of any species, but particularly um, reptile um, uh, breeders, um, we need to bring a level of sophistication to the argument and not, uh, not you know, pander to the, the um, we're going to breed this strange colour morph even though it can't even stay upright and and has tremors every time we uh, touch it, and it won't live past um, a couple of years because its skin can't even hold its uh, organs together. We need to, um, you know, put our foot down and and suggest that maybe they're not humane things to do. Yeah, and even trying to explain it simply uh, to some of these breeders, saying, "Look, you know, the reason why you're getting problems with." these animals you're breeding is you're you're also um dramatically inbreeding them you know select you're selecting the one that looks that great color and then you're breeding you know inbreeding very closely related um animals and and you know obviously we don't want to do that um with any species and yeah um and it's i can see where they're coming from the you know the owners and the breeders thinking that isn't it amazing these fantastic range of colors of of these species that we're breeding and it's just trying to slowly steer them away and say hey let's just try and breed robust animals that are going to live yeah yeah. it's pretty much that simple isn't it length of time yeah so any final comments Mark? before we get out of here i know it was a bit of a rambling episode this one wasn't it with, <laughs> you had a wonderful we... um agenda for us to follow a whole series of questions but i have just waffled so Actually, i apologize I to our yeah I've got, a, I've got the agenda pulled up here but yeah i haven't um i haven't really gone through any of that but yes um, i mean there's other issues there i mean perhaps some of them i'm just reading through that agenda there but um maybe some of them do end up being sterile so we we, we stop that <laughs> breeding <laughs> issue there with them uh and yeah we i think we've covered most of the things we had in our list there mark not um, not so. as neatly as in the list but um yeah we've covered them but we'd i'd definitely love to hear what other people think uh particularly about um uh, you know the breeding of birds and and uh, um, hand reared young and um, and colour morphs in reptiles. I reckon I'd love to hear what our listeners have to say. And send your comments to vetgurus at gmail.com and we will reply to them all. We'd love to hear from you and thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all next week. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time